From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and on today's show, we will be talking with Lorna Millington, who is the Innovation Portfolio Manager at Cadent in the UK. In the studio with me here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, and joining us all the way from Edinburgh Airport is Chris Jackson. How are you guys doing? Good, Andrew. Good to hear from you. How's Edinburgh Airport? Yeah, it's probably not the most interesting place in the world. <laughs> You, you, you don't say. Oh, that's a shock. I, I've heard such nice things about Edinburgh Airport. Well, yeah, um, it works. It's an airport. What do you want? Ah, all right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Chris, you were taking us through a little bit of background about Cadent earlier uh, before we started recording. So would you mind for the listeners to run back through that for them about uh, what Cadent's doing these days in the UK? And then we'll, uh, we'll call Lorna and get her on the line to, to correct everything you say. Yeah, sounds, sounds about usual for our format, doesn't it? Um, so basically, <laughs> Cadent is a UK gas distribution company. They are sort of a fairly uh, household name in the UK. So the reason why Cadent are coming on the show is because they're involved in a number of quite interesting flagship projects in the UK, looking at how you can use hydrogen in the gas grid. Probably their best-known signature project is a project called HiNet that they are developing um, with a company called Progressive uh, Energy and a couple of others in northwest UK around Liverpool and Manchester, where they are looking at using hydrogen from carbon capture and storage and natural gas, SMR, to um, create uh, what's called blue hydrogen. And the idea is that they then will blend that into the natural gas grid in the area up to 20%. So the gas grid will become 20% hydrogen and 80% natural gas. And then they then help to basically decarbonize homes and industry in the area by reducing the carbon content in the gas that's going into the mains. And 20% is the number because that's supposedly the tipping point at which you need to start changing appliances. So up to 20% or 23%, you can kind of leave everything as is. That's the sort of theory that everyone's been testing. And then there's also um, some interesting stuff that they have around how you can then extract hydrogen back out of pipelines to use it for mobility. And so in that way, they're kind of trying to see if this project potentially allows you a way of refueling multiple refueling stations around a region using hydrogen in existing gas mains. So really interesting stuff that they're doing with really wide implications. And it's a really big scale. I mean, Liverpool and Manchester is a hub. Um, well over a million people in the greater region and lots of industries. So really exciting and potentially a model for other countries. Um, but it's not all um, fossil fuel and natural gas stuff they do. They're also working on a project called High Deploy, where they're working with ITM Power, a PEM electrolysis company that we had on the show a couple of months ago. Uh, and there they're doing, again, a 20% blend of hydrogen into the gas grid of a private gas network at Kiel University. And the idea is really, again, looking at what impact does an electrolyzer have when that feeds in hydrogen into a gas network and how do you manage that? So I think what's nice about the show today, and Patrick will pick up on this, I'm sure, is just the ability to talk to people who are looking at this from the technical side, from the existing incumbent gas business models, and trying to see how does this fit into the future of that industry and how can they be part of the solution in making hydrogen the next step as opposed to being a barrier to deployment. Sounds pretty good. Also sounds pretty active over there at the Edinburgh airport, by the way. <laughs> a lot of action. Yeah, sorry about that. Just a little bit. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to skip over Patrick's portion because uh, we've already scheduled time to call Lorna. So I'm going to get her on the line, guys. Hold on just one second. Lorna, thank you. Hi, Lorna. This is Andrew Leadham from Everything About Hydrogen. How are you? Good, thank you. 
Excellent, excellent. I've got uh, Patrick Malloy with me here on the line, and Chris is calling in from uh, from Edinburgh Airport, actually. So we're all here on the line. Good to meet you, Lorna. Hello, Love to meet you, Lorna. Okay, so Chris, I think we were going to uh, start off on your end. If you want to go ahead and, and ask the first question. So what I wanted to ask is just to kind of kick off the conversation is how does Cadent really sort of see hydrogen fitting into this kind of story of how gas can remain relevant or what role gas should be playing in a country like the UK that is thinking about net zero and thinking about pathways to deep decarbonization. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of the high level view on it and then how you're kind of applying those thoughts into kind of a practical structure moving forward? So from a Cape perspective, hydrogen transported through the gas network offers flexibility to solve a number of the energy transition issues offers a solution for areas where electrification is a challenge such as for industry it's seen as a least disruptive option for domestic and commercial heat certainly offers an alternative fuel for transport such as hgvs domestic vehicles and even potentially trains and like natural gas it can provide daily and seasonal storage, which allows for the flexibility that's needed for heat and the opportunity to create electricity or store electricity using power to gas is a phenomenal option for us. Now, in terms of what Cape are doing, there's a number of projects that cover off pretty much all of those areas in one way, shape or form. And we can discuss those in more detail later on. I guess just just give people a little bit of uh, maybe some flavor to it, though, because, you know, a lot of people are kind of aware that the UK is quite an exciting place, but I think probably not so kind of aware of the specific projects that you guys are working on and why those are relevant to net zero. And even if they're replicable in other places or if it's just unique to the UK. Well, certainly across the UK, the gas networks are working very collaboratively to ensure that we offer the best use of the customers funding that we're allowed to use for our innovation projects. So we're looking at everything from hydrogen in a blended format. So Northern Gas Networks and ourselves have done a project called Hydeploy, and there's two phases to that. And that's looking at blending hydrogen into natural gas up to 20%, and that allows us to make decarbonisation impacts without needing to change appliances. We've then got um, areas that start to put different options together so like a high net project we've just been given through government um, programs that puts together both 100% hydrogen options with blend and we've then got projects like um, H21 which is collaborative across all the networks looking at 100% hydrogen and how we can transition the existing network um, into a format to run it on 100% hydrogen so that's a flavor of some of the things the UK is doing to prepare itself for our net zero goal. So Lorna, you mentioned uh, the, the kind of the decarbonisation kind of uh, impact that that this these sort of efforts could have. I'm just wondering when you when you guys were sitting down and kind of contemplating these this effort and this kind of transition, where did you kind of think the the, the greatest impact would be around uh, decarbonising, uh, you know, the UK using hydrogen? So we're very much looking at where the largest emitters of CO2 are. So for us that industry, small amount of users with a very large CO2 output, heat, um, half the UK emissions are, pro- are created through generating heat for homes and commercial buildings. And then latterly, um, HGVs, so uh, heavy goods vehicles on the roads are a quite hefty portion of our transport emissions um, for not that many vehicles, about 160,000 on the UK roads. Those areas are, are very much where we started to think about what can we do to offer options that would decarbonise those areas particularly. 
you know, to Patrick's kind of question, when you were first sitting down and thinking about hydrogen, I mean, you know, a lot of people have been assuming for a while, and, and many still do, that it would be mostly biogas or biodiesel or electrification. So why did hydrogen come onto the radar? What was it that kind of drew Caden to thinking about it? And how has maybe Caden's thinking evolved since it first started looking at this as an option? We very much have been watching the biogas and connecting biomethane to our network um, uh, but knowing the limitations that we have for our resources to create biomethane we knew there had to be an alternative option out there to to utilize the gas network to its full potential and we started looking at blends first so our hydroploy project was the first of the set looking at what you could do to decarbonize the gas in the network the best we could in our first step with the least amount of disruption to the consumer. Then Northern Gas Networks did a project called H21 Lead City Gate, looking at 100% hydrogen, preparing for a much wider transition and being able to then convert the networks. And we started to understand and look at how you stitch together that blend option through to 100% hydrogen and how you would transition from that start through to a a full conversion. And Lorna, does does Cadent have a view on whether hydrogen should be gray, green, blue, or or should it be any should it be classified by color? Generally speaking, um, it's important to remember that whole end to end emissions. So green is obviously the ultimate place we need to be to meet net zero. And using electrolyzers is sort of at the moment the main option on the table for green hydrogen. But for the volumes that we think we're going to need in the medium term grey or blue is more likely to be able to provide the amount and volume that we're looking for but as electrolyzers grow in scale and that particular area um, moves into greater production we can certainly see the proportion of green hydrogen growing into the future maybe even being able to be a higher proportion by 2050 than maybe we see at the moment. I kind of want to jump in here because Keen's quite a, you know, Keen is, is in some senses a lot more client facing than many other parts, you know, or direct customer and public facing than many parts of the hydrogen industry is. And, you know, we're talking about grey and blue and green hydrogen. And some people have now started talking about yellow hydrogen for nuclear. And someone was talking to me about violet the other day, which I have no freaking idea what that Every is. Every color of the rainbow, Christopher. You know, it's pretty confusing for the average person. There's so many different concepts. You know, as to an extent, does Caden have a view about whether they think this is helpful or unhelpful to think about hydrogen, you know, and its different colors, or even to think about hydrogen as different to biogas, or whether people should just think about it as low-carbon gases and conventional gases? Um, I think that it is helpful to consider the green um, credentials of the the gas that we're using so certainly think of it as low carbon in the terms for biomethane or potentially for a a more blue or um, gray hydrogen may be helpful to help people think about how where it comes from but if you consider the electricity grid today you know we don't necessarily talk about what it um, is made up from some people will probably be aware but most of the general public will just see it as electricity and think of it as mainly renewable when actually some days it's very much not renewable so it's like everything labels sort of can help education and help people to familiarize themselves with what's going on but it's not always helpful if it becomes a fixation and not necessarily a help towards getting to where we need to be. 
so let's make this a bit more so tangible. You touched on the HiNet project and we mentioned it a little bit earlier. Can you maybe give our listeners a little bit more detail about what the HiNet project is, how Cadent got involved with the project and what it is that you're trying to achieve from it? So um, HiNet project began um, with us looking at what can be done to decarbonize the relatively small number of industrial customers that we have connected to the network who actually contribute quite a large proportion of the carbon emissions within the UK. And HiNet has offered an opportunity to address um, fuel, industrial fuel switching, which is one of the areas that the government has put a lot of time and energy into looking at. For us, that we can offer carbon capture and storage as a first step to a group of industrial customers located around Runcorn and Ellesmere Port. And then we can then develop the project on. And we see this very much as a developing project, not just a one thing and, and it addresses everything. It's a nice staged project that allows us to grow it as the users can convert to using new fuels and as other options and other technologies come onto the market. So we then get to a stage where we start producing hydrogen and offer it as a fuel to give greater emissions reduction. And if all of that production isn't used by the industrial customers in the area, we're looking to utilise what we're learning at Hydroploy project to then blend the rest of that hydrogen production into the network, the current network that supplies the areas of Liverpool and Manchester, allowing for more decarbonisation off the back of that um, investment in infrastructure. And it's nice because we can see it as a really a build stock. Hydroploy gets us to a position where we can understand how blend can happen, what you need to do to make it happen, and this just becomes a scaled-up version of what we've done. We're even able to be able to offer a potential for refueling, so whether that's HGVs that can convert into hydrogen, hydrogen buses, hydrogen trains, you know, the opportunities for us to be able to stretch this further than just about the gas network and heat, it really does excite the opportunities this particular project has. And actually, because of its location, very close to an area within Cheshire that has salt caverns, which is ideal for storing hydrogen, the opportunity for this particular project to access that storage, demonstrate how um, we can use these caverns for both daily storage to offer flexibility during the day and seasonal storage to be able to match up the need for heat in winter compared to what demand we have in summer. It's just a perfect combination. And can you just explain to our listeners um, whether using salt caverns has been something that's done before? Because, you know, I guess objectively people think hydrogen, you know, is this super buoyant gas that doesn't like to be contained. So the idea that you can sort of store it underground seems a little strange. Is this completely pioneering or is there a precedent for this? No, there's actually a precedent. Um, There is already um, storage caverns used within the Teesside area of the UK storing hydrogen for industrial use today. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Is there any conditioning or treating that needs to happen to the sort of covens that you're talking about in this kind of Cheshire area? How widespread are those and sort of how widespread are those formations? Is this something unique to the HiNet project or is this something that actually could be done in a number of places? The production of the caverns is very similar between what they need to do to make it a natural gas storage facility to hydrogen. There's uh, very little difference as far as I understand and they can convert what we use today under natural gas across to hydrogen. It's just a matter of the right materials and pieces of equipment on the site itself. And actually, it is a little bit geographic because it does rely on some geology to actually work in your favour. But the caverns within the Cheshire area are quite substantial and offer today a, a quite a high proportion of the um, UK's methane storage opportunity. 
So Lorna, you mentioned briefly uh, high deploy. Maybe maybe you could give us a little more kind of color on what that project is is looking to do or prove, and and how then it, it kind of feeds back into kind of this effort more generally. So high deploy is the first live trial to inject hydrogen into the natural gas network at Keele University in Staffordshire. It's a collaborative project with ourselves and Northern Gas Network. It will serve well, it does serve 100 homes and 30 faculty buildings in the trial area within the Keele site. And that happens to be a private network. All the pipe work is owned by Keele University themselves. This was a $7.5 million project, um, pound project funded by our network innovation competition. And that allows us to utilise our customer money via our regulatory framework. The whole idea of the project is to demonstrate that we can blend up to 20% hydrogen into natural gas without needing to change appliances or actually anything on the network. Basically, put it in and use it. And then we've actually got a second phase uh, that has been subsequently funded, and that will then take it from blending on a private network to blending on a public network. And although that might not sound like much of a change, you're talking about, in the case of Keel, a very small network, easy to work with, not much in the way of infrastructure and paperwork supporting it. And we're now talking about taking it on to Northern Gas Network's network first, a place called Wynn Layton up in the northeast. And then a second trial will then follow on in the northwest within our area. And actually, when you get onto a public network, because we look after, in the case of Cadent, 50% of the UK, we've got a lot of supporting procedures, policies and paperwork and infrastructure that we have to demonstrate that we are ready to take hydrogen. So it's a bigger task than it was for Keel, but manageable because we're looking at something of a similar size, um, up to, I think, 600 homes, dependent on the size and scale of the two networks. This second phase is actually about paving the way to being able to roll out blending across the UK because that's where we get the value from. That will allow us, if it was deployed across the whole of the UK, to save around 6 million tonnes of CO2 every year, which is about equivalent to about 2.5 million cars being taken off the road. Now, that's an important step towards net zero. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a substantial uh, impact. Just a casual 6.5 million tonnes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, no biggie. Yeah. yeah. One of the follow-on stats, and, and I apologise because this is what I get asked every time I talk about a, a carbon kind of impact of, of these sort of projects. Have you any sense of, of kind of what the price impact on, on of these efforts will be? Or indeed, you know, have you projections of, about, you know, parity, I suppose, with natural gas pricing today? Hydrogen at the moment, doesn't actually have much of a value because there is no marketplace and certainly for these trials they're in a um, protected environment the customer is not paying for the additional gas that we're producing they will get the same value of um, energy that they do today but we are starting to look at how uh, certainly in the case of Hynet because it is a commercial venture we're talking about um, industrial customers investing in their equipment and they obviously very keen to understand how the paybacks work for them you aren't looking at parity potentially in a very short time scale because the equipment that we're using to convert natural gas into hydrogen has losses so there's an extra price because you pay for the natural gas lost a bit of it in converting got to lay the infrastructure and recoup some of the expenditure we are looking at sort of a long time before deployment but that said there are mechanisms that have been used before to, to sort of true up like um, in the UK there was the renewable heat incentives that the UK government put in place to help the biomethane market get underway, you know, helping that infrastructure costs to be softened so that the value of the product 
can start to get into a place of parity a lot quicker. And Lorna, uh, part of my job here at Everything About Hydrogen is to rain on the private sector parade and bring up policy. So you've <laughs> you've teed me up quite nicely here. Uh, and I wanted to, to go to that now and, and ask you, you know, from a policy side, what challenges is Caden feel are present and possibly holding them back? What what could be improved in the UK in terms of hydrogen deployment? And, you know, following on on that note, are there other countries, other markets that you think are doing a better job or that the UK could learn from in approaching its policy framework? Well, we want to see the policy to support hydrogen, give investors and the big name partners, which are lining up there, ready to go, confidence that the UK sees it sees hydrogen as part of that future energy mix. It's that confidence to support investment in such a very fundamentally new place. But we are working very closely with the UK government and the regional authorities. And we're getting positive feedback and and seeing, you know, with the announcements about the 13 million award for HiNet just yesterday, it'd be great, though, to start seeing a firm place in our energy white paper that we're anticipating very soon. That would really open up the door to get these technologies off the ground and underway. Monetary support for projects is is always welcome and continued support to carry out larger scale trials across the whole supply chain is needed, you know, what we've done so far is relatively small scale. Yeah. It, it's hardly making really an impact on showing the, the whole scale of the problem and the challenges ahead to make decarbonisation happen. And I touched on it before, you know, market support, like we saw with the renewable heat incentive, has helped decarbonisation and it had developed areas like biomethane. But when those mechanisms are removed, which has happened more recently for biomethane, it unfortunately happened before that market was truly mature. It has a stifling effect on the, the process of decarbonisation. It's really unfortunate we see markets grow and then suddenly come to a halt. Uh, it's not very sustainable under those circumstances. So commitment and keeping to it is really key for us. Um, other countries, yep, there's plenty going on uh, We've seen hydrogen as a green energy source really taking off across the whole world. Homes are being heated by it in Holland. We've got trains fueled by it in Germany. Cars are looking to be you know, running on it in Japan. And we have car refueling stations of hydrogen in the UK already. You know, We may not have much of a use, but we're starting to see the infrastructure get into place. And the whole world is actually looking very much at the UK. What we've done so far, we are having an, a lot of people come wanting us to talk about the projects we're doing that's across the whole of the gas networks in the UK because we are being seen at the moment as quite a world leader, both from a blend perspective because we have projects already doing it and the 100% thought process that we've been through and the um, work we've done today, um, the, the world is actually looking at us. Question around the policy side, um, you know, one of the things that at least I've kind of noticed, Lorna, and you know, you tell me if you feel that this is something you've seen at Caden too, is the fact that with hydrogen, it's not just one sector, you know, as you mentioned, it's not just heat, it's also transport, uh, and it's also storage. And those typically involve different parts of government, different regulatory bodies, and uh, maybe parts that don't talk to each other very much, or perhaps at all. And kind of that makes it difficult sometimes to build a structure and a policy framework that kind of enables everything. Is that something that you've also experienced and have you had any experience in trying to address that? Um, We have certainly both seen it and worked hard to try and bridge the gap. We work hard to help government to see where good processes have worked well. So um, the DFT in the UK had put in place a renewable fuels obligation 
which has really helped set the tone within the transport sector. Um, we are encouraging government to consider whether that would be a good way to approach heat, to help uh, liberalise gas market to all of the supply chain to take its part in the responsibility of helping to decarbonise. Uh, it's, it's a challenge because inevitably large organisations need to have more people doing things and it gets harder to share information and make the best of, of the resources you have. But as a whole, I think we're doing as good a job as you can to help all parties see the bigger picture and work as a, as a collective towards the right outcome. There's, there's two things that I have to ask and um, forgive me for this. The first one is transport. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting is Caden talking about how it could use the blend of 20% hydrogen in the gas grid to distribute hydrogen across the high net area and then use it for transport. But there's a technical piece to this that I think a lot of people don't understand. And I was really hoping you could maybe talk to our listeners about it. How do you get hydrogen that's blended with natural gas in the gas grid out and then purified and pressurized for transportation is you know how, how are you guys thinking about that and why does that appeal as an economic model as opposed to a decentralized approach picking our species up in, in turn um we have a project that we are running called h2gv looking at um if you transported hydrogen in the natural gas network so whether that's a blend or is 100 our natural gas network has been in place for over 200 years and it's not particularly a nice spotlessly clean environment. So it will pick up impurities and things that um, fuel cells and um, potentially other technologies that are used for transport are really unhappy about. So we were looking at it to understand what would happen, what is the challenge that we would be faced with if we wanted to then make that hydrogen to fuel grade and in the case of blend how do you take it from being a blend back into the hydrogen that is needed um, and those are two different challenges from a blend perspective there are technologies that allow you to separate hydrogen from methane so it is not impossible to do the challenge comes with right location right technology and a use for both the hydrogen and the methane that you have those are things that that project is considering there is also a, a another project that the national transmission um, business within the uk is looking at which is about that taking a blended hydrogen natural gas mix and then taking it back apart to either give a customer pure natural gas or hydrogen um, because again if you consider power stations they too don't particularly um, always want a mixture they would like um, either pure hydrogen if they're technologies that would run on hydrogen or the natural gas as it is today because that's what they were built to uh, utilize so across those two projects we are very much looking at the technological options how you then get it back into the network in a way that is both cost effective and useful so lorna one one final uh, question before we kind of conclude i i suppose one of the common concerns that you hear raised pretty broadly is around the safety of use of hydrogen um, I'm just wondering, how, how does Cadent feel about those concerns and, and how are you addressing them when you come to kind of have conversations with consumers? Safety is at the core of all of the projects we're doing around hydrogen. I mean, the gas industry in the UK has an amazing safety record. We treat the safety of hydrogen the same way we do natural gas. So we're building a bank of evidence to demonstrate the relative safety between hydrogen 
and natural gas so that we can evidence and confirm to the consumer how safe this option is. We're working hard with the consumer, actually. Northern Gas Networks did a piece of work uh, looking at consumer attitudes, and this was an academic research piece. And it actually told us that safety wasn't their major concern. They actually trust that the gas networks take safety seriously, and because of that record... They just assume that we will continue to deliver hydrogen in a safe way as we do natural gas today. They're actually more bothered about the cost. You know, your point earlier about the cost of um, everything, it's, it's the major play. And the other one's disruption. The consumer is really bothered about what they're going to have to do to decarbonise in their homes. You know, if it means taking out your um, current way of heating your home, having to do a lot of work, pay out a lot of money, you know, it's, it's overall a key concern for them. Great, Lorna. Well, I've been given permission from Chris to uh, to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. Thank you very much. Take thank care, you so much, Lorna. Fantastic. Cheers. Bye. So, Patrick, I uh, cut you off a little earlier uh, in favor of giving Lorna some airtime, so I apologize about that. But did you have some comments uh, that you wanted to make about Cadence work in the in the UK gas grid, perchance? So, so yes, but also, <laughs> don't pretend you're sorry. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not at all, actually. Um, so, so look, I think anybody who is has just listened to this interview and probably has heard or read a lot about the potential for natural gas infrastructure utilization or blending or whatnot, I, I hope this has given a, a kind of a good insight into the complexity and challenges around doing that sort of work. And in different uh, infrastructure kind of environments, different territories, you have different, slightly different challenges. But... The key takeaway here that should be that this is possible. This is something where, you know, we talk about how you transport hydrogen around. Transportation and storage has consistently been a a big challenge in the sector. And this is one way that we could move very large volumes of hydrogen from generation source and particularly for green hydrogen this is a this is a key piece because you know if you have you know take take the case of the UK if you have an awful lot of of wind resources in in isolated locations and you now want to produce electricity and you want to produce hydrogen as as the uh, kind of outputs of those uh, large infra- or large uh, generation projects you need an infrastructure base to move the product right so we obviously have a natural or a, a pre-existing electricity grid which allows you to move your electricity but now how do you move hydrogen or do you have to upgrade your electricity grid to then manufacture hydrogen on site or in specific locations for industrial users or whatnot. This is a mechanism by which we get uh, large volumes to market fast, which accelerates transition within very large volume users. So an industrial user tomorrow can use hydrogen potentially, right? Well, maybe not tomorrow, but you know, in due course, can use hydrogen that has you know substantially reduced carbon footprint compared to the natural gas that they use today, and then very naturally and very e- easily with deployment, 
you can start to introduce more and more green hydrogen into that that gas grid uh, infrastructure. That is the hypothesis that that people around the world are looking at right now and trying to work out how to do this and build this efficiently. And Chris, I'm going to let you riff on that in a second, but I wanted to jump in because you were pretty insistent that we need to talk about the safety issue here, uh, particularly with a customer or consumer facing gas grid deployment. Were you surprised at all to hear from Lorna their their research and their data indicates that consumers are not actually that fussed about uh, about safety when it comes to deploying hydrogen and that really <laughs> the number one concern is price at this point? study that they are referencing is a study done by Newcastle University, and they uh, it was a really interesting piece of work, but it's actually quite complicated because they basically asked 750 people a bunch of questions about hydrogen. And the thing that she didn't mention, which is fine, is the fact that when they asked people, something like 60% of people, before they answered any of the questions, said they didn't feel qualified to answer any of the questions. Well, I sympathize with that standpoint. So they spent half an hour briefing them all on hydrogen first. And then they and then they re-ask the questions. So I think um, it's worth bearing in mind that the biggest takeaway probably from the study was actually that most people don't really know anything about it. I think she's absolutely right to point out that generally people have a lot of trust in the gas network as safe in the UK. And I think if you explain to people that historically a lot of countries like the UK used to have uh, what was called town gas, where 50% of the gas grid used to be hydrogen-based until you know late 60s, 70s, people do feel immediately much more comfortable and then they move on to things like price. I think that is all absolutely true. But safety definitely is something that um, you know comes up and I think is important to address because once you start messing around with what goes into people's homes, I think it's an issue. And you know, give you another example, there's a 20 megawatt electrolysis project being developed in the UK to um, help provide uh, green hydrogen for buses in London. And the vast majority of residents seem to be perfectly fine with it. And the council's very supportive. But um, there are local residents that are complaining and who are saying this is going to be like a Fukushima incident and who are leafleting the area. And it's, it is hyperbolic. It is completely it is absurd. And the arguments aren't well grounded. But that doesn't mean that people don't have them. It doesn't mean that people don't need to be, you know, treated sort of seriously and respectfully and engaged with. And so I think it's always important to just remember that, you know, just because 90 percent of people in our space are comfortable with it, it doesn't mean that the broader public is comfortable and understands it. And that is a message that I think the industry constantly has to repeat. And you mentioned that town gas was 50 percent hydrogen. Can you guys talk a little bit about maybe I mean, maybe it's not that long of an answer, but can you guys talk a little bit about why they moved away from that and why you would want to move back towards that? Natural gas got cheap. It's simple as done. Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just so you understand what town gas was, I mean, town gas in the UK used to be basically uh, a mixture of onshore natural gas and then synthesized coal, right? Effectively, they, they gasified coal. And then, yeah, natural gas got cheap and they discovered the North Sea and suddenly they were like, why are we gasifying coal effectively? I mean, it's, yep. it is more nuanced, I'm pretty sure, given the sophistication of some of our listeners, but someone will tell me. Yeah, Patrick, Patrick seems pretty confident that it's not that much more nuanced. <laughs> no, like, like the cost of coal gasification back in the day wasn't, wasn't insubstantial, right? Like this is, you know, why do you do you know, a whole additional process when you have, as Chris rightly points out, the North Sea was discovered and suddenly, you know, there was abundant gas supply and, and oil and gas supply uh, available. 
that could readily just provide uh, for the entire network, right? So it's just the natural transition in these things. And part of the reason that town gas existed was because of the supply constraints around onshore natural gas. That's that's my recollection of things. So therefore, it was just a case of we have natural gas, we want to broadly build this out, we have to gasify coal, and then you discover an absolutely vast uh, supply of natural gas, and it's very straightforward and easy to to just build that back into your infrastructure. The decision, which was more complicated, which probably relates to, to some of the things we talked about today, was one of the bigger challenges in that effort of converting from town gas back to natural gas or pure natural gas was um, they had to convert the burners in all the homes. This is exactly what I wanted to ask you guys about. I presume that I would be wrong in assuming that all households in the UK have the end user infrastructure to deal with a much higher concentration of hydrogen in their gas grid or pure hydrogen in their gas grid. So this is why you hear 20%. Yeah. You know, depending on the grid system, depending on the pre-existing blends, et cetera, et cetera, like that, that 20% is just a, a general guide. I think there's a there's some standards around it. But if you start getting above that, it becomes more complicated and the end user is affected. Chris, uh, you, you have some more kind of thoughts on that one. In Europe anyway, and the UK still basically has all the European regulations and will probably for the next few years, any gas appliance runs at 23% hydrogen blend tolerance. So they can go up to 23% before it becomes a sort of safety issue and affects performance. That's sort of the, the theory anyway. So so blending, as Patrick says, shouldn't be a huge amount of an issue. Um, the pipelines in places like the UK are also quite interesting because for reasons unrelated to the transition to hydrogen, the gas operators have been switching over pipelines from steel to polymer uh, um, in the last few years. And the main reason was actually to do with maintenance, to reduce maintenance time so that actually if you had to dig up a piece of road and you had to basically fix a broken gas pipe, you didn't have to re-weld and, and cut off steel and re-put it on. You could just kind of take the polymer piece and put a new one in a bit like... Um, I'm going to get shot for this, but a bit like Lego, essentially. But the consequence of that actually is that most of the UK gas network is going to end up 100% hydrogen tolerant in the next couple of years, not because that was the original goal, but just because of the way it's configured. Now, the complication with that is on industrial sites and commercial uh, properties where there is their own site-specific gas infrastructure, that is not going to be adapted and that will require changes. But for a lot of individual homes, um, a lot of the adjustments will already be made so that certainly helps. And then there's companies like Worcester Bosch that have released boilers that can do 100% hydrogen for residential homes as well. So some of those technologies are also going to be trialed in some of the pilots that um, Lorna was talking about uh, that Caden are running. The thing that also we didn't talk about, which is interesting, which Lorna did touch on a bit, was industry and kind of the pickup of industry to blend. Because, you know, actually one of the things that um, came out of the latest government grant funding in the UK was the fact that we now have some pretty big household names, biggest one probably being Unilever, that is looking at this idea of hydrogen boilers that could run on blends of natural gas and hydrogen or 100% hydrogen so that they're kind of transition ready. You know, and these are big companies now starting to look at this and seriously engage with this. And the technical solutions are there. You know, they maybe don't have a huge amount of deployment time, but this isn't something that people are saying, oh, we'll get around to conceptually designing what a technology that could do this would look like in five years time. No, they are talking about piloting, you know, over megawatt scale units and testing it in the next couple of months. And that is really interesting. 
Patrick, do you have any more thoughts on the industrial side? Otherwise, I'm going to run with the Lego riff, actually, and talk about Lego Masters. So. <laughs> no? Wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Curveball, well, people. Well, like, like, let's throw this back, Andrew, right? What do you take from all of this? You know, with your, your vast experience in natural gas uh, yeah, in network you, design, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, no, well, I mean, you and I saw a gentleman from Equinor speak a little while ago about their project in the north of England, right? And I don't know all that much about the UK's gas grid, I'll be honest with you. But it was my understanding from what he was saying, riffing off of what Chris was just talking about, that polymer transition, the fact that their grid is actually, at least in the north of England, is already prepared to handle, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but theoretically they could do a pure hydrogen deployment tomorrow if that were something that the burners could handle, you know, with a lot of other issues, but that the grid itself is actually prepared for that. So I think that's a really interesting factoid. Uh, I don't know what it means for a timeline for deployment. I don't know if you guys have a thought on that. The project H21 that was referenced in the call earlier is one that Equinor has been leading with Northern Gas Networks. And, uh, you know, this was kind of, this is the idea that actually really has put the UK on the map. I mean, Lorna was talking about countries in the world, talking about the UK, but H21 is really the project that got people excited because it's a very detailed technical uh, piece of work that's been done looking at, could you convert the city of Leeds, which I think greater Leeds about a million people and the wider area of the second phase of the study was about three and a half million homes and businesses. So most of the northeast of England would have expanded into that. And they basically gave a pathway to get that entire region to 100% hydrogen by 2038. So if you're thinking about what that means in terms of scale, that's enormous. Um, and, you know, Lorna was given the numbers of six million tons of CO2 saved through blending. You know, to give a context, I'm pretty sure that 6 million tons, given the figures I have for the UK today, would be the entire food and drink sector, the entire cement sector, and probably throw on another 400,000 cars as well while you're at it. So it's, it is pretty significant, and it shows you how important it is when we think about deep decarbonisation, not to just focus on the power side and even not to get too obsessed about light duty passenger vehicles, but to go for you know, heating, which is just this huge giant, which hydrogen really has a unique role in, and heavy transport, which Lorna talked about as well. There's an awful lot of very interesting efforts coming out of the UK. You know, some of the stuff that Lorna talked to around industrial users and um, the kind of this kind of impact that they can have in terms of how much they consume and whatnot is, is something that is close to my heart uh, in the sense of that's, that's kind of the stuff we look at. And the scale of impact you can generate can be quite substantial. At this point in time, like H21, there are some other pilot projects and, and small um, city projects or town projects. I think so there's one in Italy. I think there's a couple in Japan that they've looked at. Um, I'm trying to think of others, but, but more generally, H21 is a very large-scale project, as Chris says, one million approximate people. It is the biggest, best test case for this. It's also worth saying that uh, Equinor, when uh, when we, we met, with, uh, met with Steiner at, 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 the, at the event, he was talking about the fact that they were going to use autothermal reforming and carbon capture, right? Now, just for those who, who may be a little kind of newer to it or, or wondering what the difference is, when we talk about SMR, it's steam methane reforming. When we talk about ATR, it's autothermal reforming. Essentially, autothermal reforming typically has better capture potential, right? So you can, when we talk about rates of capture of carbon from that type of reforming, you often see 90-odd percent as being the number. Um, having said that, 
they're also contemplating green hydrogen transition. So we have a large-scale project in Leeds at, in H21. We have a very high carbon capture potential using autothermal reforming and further integration of uh, renewables as the next kind of phase or effort within that phase. So there's a lot of very interesting consequences to this size and scale of project. And similarly, you know, we've just talked with Lorna, Hynet, similarly consequential, right? But with, you know, a slightly different focus in that, you know, they're looking at industrial users, right? But this is what's going on. And in, in, there are a lot of these type of projects going on, on across the world. It's very, very, very um, important to understand how these things work and, and exactly how we then design the next uh, version of these systems and these grids. Chris, did you have anything else you wanted me to ask about? Yeah, I think we're good. I mean, you know, there's always more you can go on about, but I think actually that was a lot of useful content there. There's always more, Chris, but you save that excitement for the next time and you see that the process continues. Well, I think Arup is on next, so uh, that'd be interesting because they are basically helping the British government to run the Hydrogen for Heat program. And so we've talked a lot about transport, mobility, uh, storage, sort of other various industrial uses for hydrogen. But actually, Hydrogen for Heat is a huge, huge sector, probably, I would say, the most interesting angle for deep decarbonisation. So really excited to follow on from this great episode with Caden with uh, that discussion with Arup. Excellent. Well, I think that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. Many thanks to Lorna Millington, Innovation Portfolio Manager at Cadent in the UK. It was wonderful having her on the show, and we hope uh, to hear more from them in the future. As always, thank you to my stellar, stellar co-hosts, Patrick and Chris, making the time all the way from lovely, beautiful, scenic Edinburgh Airport. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Andrew. And most importantly, thank you to our listeners. We really do appreciate the loyalty and the support. And as you all know, we love to hear from our listeners. So if you have any questions for us, please do reach out via email at podcasts at inspiration.com or find us on Twitter at About Hydrogen. We do love to hear questions, and we, we are always excited to address them in the next episodes. If you've enjoyed the show, we do require a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. 